Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in verbal diorama land, and I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 14, uh, which is The Matrix. Um, first of all, thank you for all of the love for The Mummy. Um, I hope the rest of the Org Stravaganza episodes are so well received. Honestly, I think this one might be, but I guess we'll just have to see. As for what I've been up to, um, I've actually come to a bit of a decision about my writing. So writing about movies is something I've wanted to do for years and I've been in touch with a few people about writing articles for publication and the process has been, shall we say, interesting. My ideas haven't exactly been met with positivity um, and that's fine because it's a personal opinion and at the end of the day it's what fits their audience. So I kind of want to write what I want to write. So I'm going to start publishing articles on the Verbal Diorama website. And I'm going to start that at the end of August. And they're going to be pretty sporadic, um, just sort of as and when. So the podcast is going to deal with specific movies. Whereas I want the articles to look at sort of more widely encompassing themes or genres, um, such as a specific studio output or genre comparisons. Uh, which I can't really cover on the podcast because I like the podcast to be very sort of one movie specific. It's very rare that I'll do a comparison piece. Um, I think the last time I did that was Aladdin, but I kind of felt like I really wanted to compare the two. Um, whereas if I wanted to look at specific studio output, for example, I kind of find that a bit difficult to do on the podcast. Um, anyway, my first article is going to be on the animation genre. Uh, which is a topic pretty much everyone knows I love with all my heart and soul. Um, I'm really excited uh, about the article and I hope people enjoy reading them when I put them up. Um, 
And if I get something out of it, if someone happens to read them and enjoy them, then that's great. But if not, it's no big deal. Um, I just genuinely enjoy doing what I'm doing on the podcast and I feel like I will genuinely enjoy doing the writing as well. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Otherwise, um, I recently recorded an episode with Nick and Tiff from Black Girls Do Stuff Too. And it should be out soon. Um, and I had such a blast. It was so much fun. We laughed so much. Like they are just incredible, incredible girls. They're fantastic and hilarious and I genuinely adore them. Um, so I think that's going to be out this week, I think they said, but it was a lot of fun and we were very thirsty during that episode and that's all I'm going to say. So full disclosure, I was quite nervous about tackling The Matrix um, because when you have a movie that's so iconic and such a science fiction phenomenon, um, you know, something that's so imitated in pretty much every other genre of movie ever since, I suppose you could call it a legend uh, of, of cinema in a year that had quite a lot of uh, cinematic legends. You know, 1999 is stated as the best year for movies. Um, and, well, you do kind of feel a little bit worried about taking something that massive on. Um, and I had kind of had it in the back of my mind for a while. Um, and then I got a lovely review on Apple Podcasts a few months ago from Lorraine from Show Me The Podcast. And part of the review at the end basically suggested that I should do The Matrix and that she would be really interested to see what I had to say about it. And I thought about it and then I was like, well, if she thinks that I can do The Matrix, then I guess I can do The Matrix. And because I have so much respect for the ladies of Show Me The Podcast, I thought I'd do it. And um, and just recently, Harry and Lorraine have wrapped their final episode of Show Me The Podcast. And they're actually moving on to new projects. So I thought to myself, well, I want to ask Lorraine for her thoughts because she suggested that I do it in the first place. And when I asked Lorraine, I kind of knew that Harry might pop up. So I was really, really pleased and really happy that Lorraine sent me a recording of their thoughts on The Matrix and Harry uh, was there too. And so for your listening pleasure, I give you Harry and Lorraine and their thoughts on The Matrix. Uh, hello, this is Lorraine from uh, the podcast that was Show Me The Podcast. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about The Matrix because um, Emma's asked me to do a wee piece. Um, I asked her to do this film a few months ago um, because I was lazy and I knew that she'd find out all the interesting facts for me. But uh, she asked me to do a bit, so now I have to do a little bit. <laughs> um, but my good friend Harry from Show Me The Podcast has decided to join me. I have. Hello. You just, as soon as you hear the bloody matrix, you're like, I have to talk about it. I totally railroaded this. We're on the, on the phone to each other. Like, oh, I've got to record this thing. And I was like, oh, I can help. <laughs> Definitely. So sorry for gate crashing him. Yeah, feel free to not put this out. <laughs> so I uh, watched it last night for the first time in a long time. And I know you watched it recently too. And oh my God, it's just still amazing. Yeah, blew my mind again. And I had... It was really nice, actually, because not to, I think in one of our episodes, we talked about how you'd like to watch a film again for the first time. And The Matrix was on mine. And I had that feeling again. I was just like, 
Yeah. What? This whole concept is amazing. Like, yeah. And it actually still stands because it's like 1999 and I felt like it still, it, it hadn't lost, you know, sometimes a lot of the visual effects and stuff like that. I felt like it all still worked. Um, I don't agree there so much. There were elements to it. I was just like, oh, that has dated a little bit, but not massively. But okay, yeah, just, I'll let you off. But at the same time, like they started something like almost and the, the Wachowski brothers at the time. Mm. Um, and yeah. I, I, I was sat there fully appreciating it. Yeah, no, completely. And uh, I loved all the leads, Keanu, Carrie, Lawrence and Hugo. I thought they did exceptionally well. And of course, the martial arts scenes were are like out of this world. And the action scenes. I think that's one of the things I like about this film. It's just like they are so over the top, but so done amazingly well. And I was like reading about all the uh, training that they put in for all the martial arts um and it's just exceptional, the dedication that they put in. And it shows because they all looked like they really knew what they were doing. I'm sure some of it was stunt doubles, but the bits they did, they did extremely well. Uh, yeah, no, they did. They, they totally did. And I, I agree. I love all the, the Kung Fu and all those scenes. The training scenes are exceptional as well. But I could see the stunt doubles a bit more easier this time. <laughs> yeah, no, I did see some, but... Um, you know, that's okay. We, we get that with films because, oh, you know, they can't do everything. Not everyone's Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> You say that, but Keanu Reeves is known for now for doing so many of his own stunts. I swear, probably the older they get, the less they care. Maybe. <laughs> Mr. Maybe, John maybe. Wick. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just really enjoyed watching it again. And the scene, oh my God, when they go into the lobby and that shootout and with the, the prodigy soundtrack oh my god i was just i swear to god i nearly peed my pants it was just <laughs> epic and oh god and i loved her in this she's so badass who um carrie Ann moss yeah i wanted to be trinity back in the day yeah i think i wanted to be trinity last night <laughs> i wanted to be trinity last night no it was just i oh god you forget how cool um Lawrence Fishburne is as Morpheus as well but yeah no he I couldn't see anyone else playing him and on a little side note if any of you ever watch Inside the Actress Studio go watch the episode on him because he's he's just the coolest guy you could ever come across and I think in this he just I, I couldn't imagine anyone else doing that role no no he 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 made it his own definitely and I hope they never remake these films, to be honest. I didn't think they should. Um, no, no, they don't need to. No, but they probably will, won't they? No. But, yeah. No, he, 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 <laughs> he he's irreplaceable in that role. Yeah, no, definitely. So, um, I think the same with... Um, I would like to say the same with Keanu Reeves and, and Carrie Ann Moss as well. I think, to a degree, they it is their role, isn't it? Like, no one else is going to be Neo. And, if, and some people but he is that yeah some things shouldn't be remade and this is definitely one of them what did you think of the uh, oh my god the soundtrack was amazing had rob zombie marilyn manson rage against the machine i was just like I... the, the end when the rage against the machine comes on and he goes up and uh, he flies up in the air i'm like oh my god i was just sitting there waiting for the scene it was like the whole uh fight club end when the pixies comes on where is my mind i was just uh... like amazing <laughs> 
sorry <laughs> no 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 when it finished i uh, i got hit with a massive like wave of nostalgia for rage because i i i loved rage against the machine back in the day you did yeah i was well it's like when i was 17 my ex-boyfriend was like in a band and i used to go and sit in his basement and watch him and his mates sing like uh, perform wake up and i was just like oh good wow. <laughs> no they great use of music in this film i have to say because I think for me, music makes a big difference, and they really, you know, I didn't realize Rob Zombie's song was that old, but yeah. Which one is that? It's when they're in the uh, the nightclub, and then they had um, like Marilyn Manson as well, who you know I love Marilyn Manson. Um, but yeah, so the soundtrack was absolutely astounding, which I think is um, Marilyn it's Manson. Not... What? Oh, oh, you just it's not just that like what I, when I was watching it what just really stood out to me was was the the color grading yes oh it's so clever how they yes. make it like green and yes. gray and it's just oh it's just so good. extremely depressing colors no no <laughs> it is you don't you it's not a place you want to go <laughs> no no not not when you look back on it and like yeah the only i think it's just interesting how the only use of real color like vibrant color in there is the woman in red yes and that's and then you read and like oh yeah it's just it's just such an interesting um like it's, it was just made in such an interesting way yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so um we've been talking now for quite a few minutes so we're going to shut up but um em, thank you for letting us give you our little piece uh we and could go on forever for yeah <laughs> Thanks for letting me gatefish. <laughs> I didn't really have much of a choice. Um, but yeah, so uh, we're looking forward to listening to the episode when it comes out. And mm-hmm. we will chat to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you to Lorraine and Harry for their thoughts on The Matrix. If this episode turns out really great, that's down to Lorraine and her excellent idea. If it sucks, that's all my fault because I'm the one who did all the research. And if I got something wrong or I didn't mention something, that's on me. Um, by the way, I feel like I should say thank you to everyone who has left me a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, I've just counted and I've now got 28 reviews, which is amazing. And thank you to everyone who's taken the time to do it. I know I've mentioned it a couple of times, how wonderful it is to get a rate and review on Apple Podcasts and how much podcasters appreciate it. But we really, really do. So thank you so much for that. Right. Okay. We're going to go into the Matrix Um, I hope that I do it justice. Are we really here? Did you download this episode of your own free will? Or was it destiny? Hopefully a little bit of both. As we follow the white rabbit into the late 90s, um, the year 1999. When we were all on the cusp of the millennium bug. And I don't know if anyone can remember the millennium bug. I definitely do remember the millennium bug. Because that was when the machines were going to basically take over us all. Probably. dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? 
They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Welcome to the real world. So you're here to save the world. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. No one has ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy. Because Kansas is going bye-bye. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Here's a little plot summary on the Matrix. It's the year 1999, and Thomas Anderson, hacker alias Neo, works in a cubicle, manning a computer, and doing a little hacking on the side. It's through this latter activity that Thomas makes the acquaintance of Morpheus, who has some interesting news for Mr. Anderson. None of what's going on around him is real. The year is actually closer to 2199 and it seems Thomas, like most people, is the victim of the Matrix, a massive artificial intelligence system that has tapped into people's minds and created the illusion of a real world while using their brains and bodies for energy, tossing them away like spent batteries when they're through. Morpheus, however, is convinced Neo is the one who can crack open the Matrix and bring his people to both physical and psychological freedom. So... Cast-wise, okay. Now, on this podcast, I talk about a specific gentleman quite a lot, and I'm pretty certain that well, most most of the most recent episodes have featured Keanu Reeves at some point. Um, and now, this episode is basically, again, all about Keanu Reeves, because he is obviously the main actor in this movie. He plays Neo. I'm not going to go into his film history, because I think everyone knows um, what Keanu has done. Obviously, I've already done an episode about Speed, um, which is one of my favourite Keanu movies, full stop. So I think pretty much everyone knows everything there is to know about Keanu Reeves. But um, this role was actually up for Will Smith. And he actually passed on the role of Neo to be in Wild Wild West, um, which I think he's acknowledged was probably quite a mistake. But I think he's also acknowledged that he could never have done the movie justice like Keanu did. This particular role is a role that's synonymous with Keanu Reeves, along with pretty much every other role that Keanu's ever done. Um, We also have Laurence Fishburne in this movie as Morpheus. And um, I think it's safe to say that Morpheus is probably one of the coolest characters that Laurence Fishburne has ever played. We've also got Carrie-Anne Moss as Trinity, which... 
Interestingly, Will Smith's wife, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, was given the role of Trinity, um, but she just didn't have the chemistry with Keanu Reeves. So she actually ended up leaving the production and then Carrie Ann Moss was hired. And obviously, as we know, she has excellent chemistry with Keanu Reeves. And honestly, who would not have chemistry with Keanu Reeves? Like, Jada, what is wrong with you? And we also have Hugo Weaving, who plays Agent Smith technically the bad guy hugo weaving has played quite a lot of bad guys in his time the movie was written and directed by lana and lily wachowski in 1994 uh, lana and lily signed with agent lawrence mattis who's still their manager to this day and they finished a script called the matrix however it was another script of theirs um, assassins which was optioned by dino de Laurentiis. now if you recognize the surname de Laurentiis. From this podcast, Dino De Laurentiis is actually the uncle of Aurelio De Laurentiis. And he was previously mentioned on this podcast on Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. So Dino De Laurentiis uh, optioned Assassins for $10,000. And Warner Brothers production chief Lorenzo Di Bonaventura signed the Wachowskis to a multi-script deal. So Assassins came out in 1995, but the Wachowskis were not happy with the movie at all they actually ended up calling it an abortion. Um, and they even tried to take their name off it because they hated it so much. Um, at this point, The Matrix is still sitting in the sidelines um, because then they were given the opportunity to direct their first movie, uh, a movie called Bound, which was released in 96. And that became sort of a bit of an indie hit um, and also attracted attention uh, for the same-sex relationship that was portrayed in the movie. The Matrix was eventually greenlit in spring of 1997, and it was given a budget of $60 million. Um, and a 600-page comic book-style storyboard, which basically showed the complete movie's look and feel, was created by concept artists Jeff Darrow and Steve Scrotchy. Uh, Steve Scrotchy also worked with the Wachowskis on basically all of their future movies. The production was agreed to shoot in Sydney to save on cost and it was split between Village Roadshow and Warner Brothers. The Wachowskis required the cast to not only train rigorously under the tutelage of legendary Hong Kong fight coordinator Yuen Wu-Ping but also read multiple books on philosophy and evolutionary psychology. Yuen Wu-Ping had to rearrange his schedule and persuading him to do the movie wasn't easy um, but I think a lot of the time the cast were not entirely certain of the actual premise of the movie. And so all of the books that they had to read were to try and give them some sort of understanding. All the principal actors trained for months, like four months. Keanu Reeves suffered a two-level fusion of his cervical spine. Uh, he ended up in a neck brace. He suffered leg paralysis. And the guy is such a legend that he still trained anyway. He had to have neck surgery just before production. And that's why he kicks less in the movie than anyone. Um, Carrie on Mars sustained a sprained ankle, which she hid the whole time during filming because she was worried about being replaced. Hugo Weaving injured his hip. He cracked two ribs and he punched a fake wall so hard he injured his hand. So pretty much the whole cast were really suffering throughout this movie. Um, the filming began in March 98. And it ran over schedule, but Warner Brothers agreed to increase the budget by an extra $3 million for the effects because they saw what the movie's potential was. In 1999, um, Keanu Reeves was 
kind of still famous, but his star was waning a little bit. And as the post-production continued, the main concern was how do we sell this movie to the public? Because without a highly bankable lead star and the potential for confusion on the theme and the trippy visuals, you know, how were they going to persuade people to see this movie? So what they did was they created a trailer for the Super Bowl. And it just contained brief images of major scenes in the movie, such as bullet time and the kung fu action and the striking visuals with the tagline, in 1999, The Matrix Has You. And then Lawrence Fishburne kind of voices over, no one can be told what The Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. And it worked because people did go and see it. As I mentioned, production budget of $63 million dollars And the worldwide gross in the end was $463.5 million. So this was a massive success for Warner Brothers. I want to talk a little bit about bullet time because I've just mentioned bullet time. And some listeners might be like, well, what is bullet time? Well, bullet time was technically created for The Matrix Um, It's also a Warner Brothers trademark since 2005. And the technique of using still cameras to freeze motion actually dates back to experiments by a guy called Edward Muybridge in 1878, would you believe? He analysed the motion of a galloping horse by placing a line of cameras next to the racetrack. Each camera then took one photo as the horse galloped past essentially just kind of the horse snapped a piece of string across the track and it took a photo. Moybridge then assembled each photograph into a rudimentary animation. He actually ended up creating something called the Zoopraxiscope, which is a glass disc which contains the images which you spin in front of light and it shows one single animated image. Um, The Zoopraxiscope is widely considered to be the predecessor of the movie projector. So this is quite astonishing technology back in 1878. The first instance of bullet time in a movie was in the 1962 movie Zots. Um, You can actually, if you go onto YouTube and you search for Zots, you can actually see the scene with bullet time in. Um, The concept was actually most used in animation, though. Um, And in 1966, the Japanese anime series Speed Racer, which coincidentally the Wachowskis adapted into a live action movie in 2008, contains a short sequence at the end of its titles where a time slice is used to make it appear that the camera pans around the character. The effect was widely used in the 1990s in music videos and movies to achieve the sort of slow motion bullets being dodged effect. And the probably most well known was in the movie Blade in 1998, um, which used quite heavy CGI. The Matrix was the first movie to use time slice and bullet dodging together in one scene. And it was created by a guy called John Gator. So he created the trademark bullet time. Um, So what happened was they set up a circular green scheme rig. Um, The cameras were strategically placed. Um, They were aligned by laser targeting system. And it was basically determined by simulation, sort of curving up and down, depending on the look they required, whether they wanted to kind of curve under the characters or over the characters. Um, And then the cameras themselves could either shoot simultaneously or sequentially. 
depending on the finished product of what the Wachowskis wanted. And then interpolation software was used to create extra frames. And each image was then digitally altered to include the backdrops and the, the eventual fluidity. What's interesting is the actors within the scenes were performing practical stunts. So in the first Matrix movie, when you see Keanu Reeves kind of bend backwards as he's dodging Smith's bullets, that's Keanu doing that actual shot. The videos are on YouTube. You can have a look at how they made The Matrix. It's quite astonishing and I recommend that anyone watches it. And you can basically see he kind of goes back and the cameras basically are all around him on this kind of green circular stage, just kind of taking the images. And it's it's quite astonishing how they did that. Now, the same effect can be created with CGI, but honestly, it's it's no way as effective. And you know me, you know that I love practical effects. The practical shots in The Matrix are genuinely quite stunning. And although I'm going to talk a little bit about the sequels later, but not all that much, um, it's one of the many reasons why I prefer the first movie over the sequels, because I feel the sequels rely more on the CGI and they tend to look a bit more dated than this movie does. So I talked a little bit about Keanu Reeves as Neo and Neo is the one. And the chosen one, I'll use in inverted commas, is a very popular trope in movies and TV. Um, obviously, Neo is the one. He's kind of prophesized to be the leader of this rebellion. Other examples of a chosen one, you've got likes of Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars, John Connor in Terminator movies, even to an extent Katniss Everdeen um, in The Hunger Games, Although she's not actually sort of the chosen one, she actually kind of becomes the chosen one. She is given that title by the rebellion. Um, obviously, on TV, you have Buffy Summers, who is the chosen one. She's the slayer. Uh, by extension, you've got Faith as well in that show. You could also say the sisters in Charmed. I think they're called the chosen ones um, in that particular show. And countless people on Game of Thrones, the prince who was promised, etc., etc. Gaius Baltar in Battlestar Galactica. And to a degree also in Firefly, River Tam. Um, although, to be honest, because Firefly was so, so short-lived, we never actually saw her full potential. Um, and because I love to reference previous movies from this podcast, um, Kale from Titan AE is definitely uh, a chosen one trope we have aladdin in aladdin you know he's the diamond in the rough and also rick o'connell um not so much in the mummy but more so in the mummy returns um he's he becomes the chosen one for some bizarre reason so it's it's a very popular trope in movies and tv to have a chosen one um and the name neo is also an anagram of one so I don't know if that was done deliberately, but it feels like it was. I want to talk a little bit about the movie's relevance today because the movie explores certain themes. Um, and I think the main thing that The Matrix explores is freedom and the argument between free will and destiny. But also, I think it's important when you look at this movie, especially looking at this movie sort of in 2019, that this movie is a potent allegory for transgender rights. Because the Wachowskis, if you don't know, are trans women. During the writing and filming of this movie, they were living as male and they were basically hiding their transness 
but they have both since come out as transgender and completed their transitions. And I think that's important to note because in the movie, Thomas Anderson is known as Thomas Anderson during the day at work. And then it's at night, he becomes Neo. Neo, the hacker, is the real life that he prefers. He always knew that he was Neo, but it was just easier for him to be Thomas. And if you look at the Matrix and you look at the the life in the Matrix, life as Thomas, life outside of the Matrix, life as Neo, it's undoubtedly easier to live in the Matrix than it is to live out of the Matrix. And so living as Thomas was always going to be the easy option for this character. But it isn't until the end of the movie that he fully embraces that he is Neo and he rejects the Thomas Anderson persona because he finally feels free of the constraints of this Matrix-based existence. And it's why the line to Agent Smith, my name is Neo, is so important because Smith calls him Mr. Anderson throughout the movie, basically showing the complete ignorance of the programming of the Matrix. It's respectful to address a person with the name they want to be called. He repeatedly says, you know, my name is Neo. And also, when you're talking about trans people, the pronouns that they want to be referred to as, which is why it's similarly important to refer to Lana and Lily as Lana and Lily. Neo, as a character, is essentially waking up on the first day of the rest of his life, knowing who he really is and finally being free. And so it's understandable that the movie is so important, not only to the Wachowskis themselves, but also the trans community as well. In fact, after Lily Wachowski came out as transgender, she encouraged looking back on her and Lana's works through the lens of our transness, saying that the themes of identity, self-image and transformation are apparent in The Matrix, which is about one person's struggle with an eventual acceptance of an identity that exists beyond the borders of a rigidly defined system. And so the directors are even saying that this is a movie about being trans. So go back and watch The Matrix knowing that it's basically about being trans and I guarantee you, you will see the movie differently. I want to talk as well a little about the movie's idea of destiny versus free will. Is life a choice or is it chosen for us? In The Matrix, Morpheus gives Neo the choice of the blue pill to stay in The Matrix and live as a slave, essentially, or the red pill to disconnect from The Matrix and live in the real world. So Neo is given that choice. He has free will, but within the constructs of the Matrix, actions are essentially predetermined. So everyone's destiny is already chosen. It's only in the real world that people are given the power to change their destinies and to have the free will necessary to make their own choices. Neo actually chooses to take the red pill and soon realises that real life isn't pretty and nor is the free will that's associated with it because life in the Nebuchadnezzar Oh, crikey, I'm going to get this terribly wrong. (laughs) Okay, you know how terrible I am with long words. Okay, here we go. Life in the Nebuchadnezzar, woo, Nebuchadnezzar, is always being one step ahead of the machines, uh, constantly on the run, basically. And looking at the character Cypher, it's no wonder that he can't deal with that life. He actually chooses to return to the safe haven of the Matrix because... 
you know, the pleasure of an excellent steak dinner is something that you just don't get in that real world outside of the Matrix. And fake pleasure is better than no pleasure to him. Regardless of the state of their existence, Morpheus, Trinity and the rest of Zion value the free will over the comparative luxuries of life in the Matrix. Interestingly, though, although Neo chooses free will over destiny, he does have a destiny. He's destined to be the one. And the Oracle actually prophesizes this. And her prophecies do actually come true. And is it really fate if we're told the future? Or do we become predestined to be the person we're told that we're going to be? And it's really interesting questions, actually. When you look at a movie like this, in many ways, her prophecies are self-fulfilling. And Neo chooses to believe when she tells him that he isn't the one. So, therefore, making his actions appear that they are free will over destiny. I do think it's a really interesting thing to talk about. And the fact that we are still talking about this movie and about the themes of this movie, I think are just wonderful, you know, because... There's, there's so much rich content in this movie to actually really make your brain kind of whir a little bit. It's quite cool. Just before I mentioned about freedom being the main theme of the movie and, and, the, and the choice to be free and to be equal and to be able to live your life as you wish, sort of regardless if you're in the matrix or you're not, if you're given a choice, then it's, it's not everyone in the Matrix who's given a choice. Ultimately, it's just Neo who's given a choice and obviously the rest of the inhabitants of Zion. But if you were given the choice, what would you choose? And freedom is something that so many people in 2019 are still fighting for. It's, you know, women are fighting to be paid equally and to be free to choose what they do with their own bodies. People of colour are fighting to live a life free from fear and racial inequality. And I mentioned trans people, but the LGBTQ community are still fighting to be accepted and to be able to live their lives however they choose without fear of repercussion. It's kind of sad that we all still live in a world with, with bigotry and racism and sexism and homophobia and Islamophobia and where it's easier to get a gun than it is to get an abortion in some states in America. In many ways, the themes of this movie, freedom and equality in the face of tyranny and oppression, are more relevant today than they've actually ever been. In doing my research for The Matrix, I felt very much like I was kind of going down the rabbit hole myself because there's quite a lot of theories on the internet and there's quite a lot of discussions and there's message boards and Reddit threads and, I mean... There's so much that people are still talking about, about the Matrix. And one of the questions I had um, that I actually specifically went online to find out um, was about the first Matrix program, because Smith mentions that in the first Matrix, they created the perception of this utopia um, and it ended up being unacceptable to the humans that were living in it. And essentially, it was because the humans realised that it wasn't real. Because in order for humanity to be human, you need to experience pain and suffering um, and the acceptance of that humanity. Um, so basically, he mentions that an entire crop of, of humans detached from this utopian matrix and died. Um, and through my research online, and, and I don't know whether this was the Wachowski's actual um, intention, 
but apparently it's an allusion to the Garden of Eden, which was obviously a perfect paradise, which Adam and Eve then spoiled with greed and lust or something. There's a lot of talk about colour in The Matrix, so I want to talk about colours. Um, I want to talk about colours in the first movie. I know that the subsequent movies have different colours associated with them, but I'm just going to talk about the colours in the first movie. So when you watch the movie, any scenes that are set in The Matrix are tinted green to show that you're in The Matrix. And any scenes in the real world are tinted blue. Um, and essentially, anything that's red is evil. Um or danger, shall we say. So, for example, when Neo finally wakes up outside the Matrix, the pods that they're in are tinted red to sort of show that the, the danger and the evil. Um, and the Sentinels that we see actually have kind of red within them. Um, but I think the most kind of striking visual in the Matrix is the woman in the red dress. And the woman in the red dress is, a, is also a trope. Um, it can indicate many things, but it's usually things like sexuality, passion, lust, danger or a distraction. Um, and the woman in the red dress in The Matrix is specifically designed to be a distraction. She's there to distract Neo. But I want to talk about some other examples um, of the, this kind of woman in red because some of them have been on the podcast before. So in Aladdin, we had Slave Jasmine. Um, now, Slave Jasmine was in the cartoon version of Aladdin. She wasn't featured in the live action. And Slave Jasmine specifically wears red clothing. Um, but also uh, Jessica Rabbit. And Jessica Rabbit, as I mentioned in the Who Friend Roger Rabbit episode, Jessica Rabbit actually subverts the trope because she is kind of outwardly this overly kind of sexual character. But as I mentioned in the episode, she's actually very faithful to her husband, Roger, and she loves him more than anything. So although she is indicative of the trope of the woman in the red dress, she's the distraction, she's kind of the danger element... She actually does subvert that trope. And I still love that about Jessica Rabbit. Um, also, other examples, you've got the likes of Tina in The Mask, who wears a beautiful red dress in the bank. Um, I mentioned before Gaius Baltar from Battlestar Galactica. So his partner in Battlestar Galactica was number six, who was a Cylon. And she was often featured wearing a beautiful red dress. She looked absolutely stunning. I mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer before. In season five, you had the villain Glory, who very often wore red and looked absolutely gorgeous. You've also got classics like Gone with the Wind. And also Dana Barrett in Ghostbusters, Azul, also featured a scene where she was very sexually charged and she was wearing that beautiful red dress. Interestingly... The red pill shows Neo the real world and the blue pill takes him back into the Matrix. But if you think about the colour coding, the pills should actually really be green for the Matrix and blue for the real world. And maybe that's just me being a bit of a pedant. Um, I'm sure the Wachowskis have a reason for making them red and blue. But if you think about it logically, they should really be green and blue. But it doesn't matter. Um, so... Smith actually mentions about humanity being a plague and 
that all humans do is take the natural resources and move on and that we're basically a virus. Um, and that is completely true because if you look at the modern world and the situation that we're in, we are doing pretty much everything we can to kill the world around us. Um, it's almost like this movie is self-prophesizing because it's telling us basically everything that we need to know about um, our reliance on artificial intelligence um, and the fact that we are killing the planet. Uh, we're relying on AI basically more than ever. Uh, you know, we even have, in some places, artificial intelligence driving cars. We get our uh alexas or oh crikey i probably shouldn't say that word oh my god we get our, <laughs> our devices to do our shopping for us to remind us to call someone um we're constantly on our phones constantly on social media constantly plugged in to the internet and to technology and you know we are constantly reliant um on all of this technology the machines in the matrix become so self-aware that they realized humanity was a disease and that the only way to control that disease was to make humanity slaves. So we would stop the mindless destruction of everything around us. And honestly, I really hope that this movie isn't some kind of prophecy in itself because I kind of don't want to be in a pod um, as a battery. But I think looking at this movie now, it's very, very clear kind of not where we're going, because I certainly don't think that the machines will be able to rise up to that effect. But I certainly do think it's we can use this movie as a bit of a wake up call to kind of see, well, this is actually what we're doing. We need to do something about it. We need to stop polluting our planet. We need to maybe stop relying on AI so much. Um because lots of movies have told us that the machines will take us over because they will get too intelligent one day. Finally, I want to talk about the influence of this movie. Now, the Wachowskis have basically come out and admitted uh, quite a lot of influences um, for this movie. Um, and they've not been shy about it. But the main one I want to talk about is actually Ghost in the Shell. And when I'm talking about Ghost in the Shell, I'm talking about the original anime. I'm not talking about the Scarlett Johansson movie, um, just to put that out there. So Ghost in the Shell is basically the your main character is Major Motoko Kunasagi. And Motoko Kunasagi is a cyborg. And the story essentially involves um, revolves around the investigation of a hacker called the Puppet Master who can take over cyborgs uh, to achieve political superiority. And ideologically speaking, they're reasonably similar, but some of the sequences are almost identical, such as the green screen code across the screen and the location on the back of the neck of the network jack. There's even a scene where Motoki takes cover from bullets behind a crumbling pillar. And if you enjoy The Matrix, which you must do because you're listening, I would highly recommend watching Ghost in the Shell. It's very, very enjoyable. And I think that if you enjoy The Matrix, I think that you will you will see the inspirations kind of there and the influences for The Matrix. But Ghost in the Shell is very unique. Um, and like I say, um, don't watch the Scarlett Johansson movie. I've got nothing against the movie per se. I think visually it's very nice. But the whole whitewashing thing, 
I, I still can't kind of get quite past that to kind of appreciate the movie for what it is. Um, but I would highly recommend the anime movie because it's absolutely wonderful. So sequels wise, there was an animated uh, sequel called The Animatrix, which I've never seen. But apparently it uh, ties up quite a lot of loose ends, gives you a bit more information about The Matrix, about life outside of The Matrix. Um, but I've never seen it, so I can't really comment on it. I have seen The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. I remember not enjoying them all that much and basically thinking they were a bit overblown and a little bit kind of wishy-washy and too reliant on CGI. One thing I will say is uh, for this podcast, I actually went out and I bought The Matrix on Blu-ray because I didn't own it, but I wanted to. And I had the option of buying The Matrix on its own or buying sort of the three pack with the sequels. And I kind of thought, well, I don't really want the sequel, so I'm not going to bother. So I just bought The Matrix on its own. And I will admit, after finishing The Matrix and the way The Matrix ended, I thought to myself, I really want to watch more. I want to watch more of this. I want to know what happens next. But then obviously I know what happens next because I've seen those sequels and I remember not enjoying them. Part of me does kind of wish that I'd bought the three pack so that I could have maybe rewatched the sequels as well but I don't feel like I'm missing out on a great deal in rewatching them um I just I just found them a bit overblown and honestly a little bit up their own bums I kind of feel like the matrix in itself is is so wonderful and self-contained and a li- and kind of a little bit unassuming in how great it is it doesn't think it's great Whereas I feel that the sequels kind of do think they're great and I think they kind of veer off in a bit of a weird direction. Um, Whereas I like how kind of standalone The Matrix is. Um, They didn't need to do sequels. Um, I mean, obviously, the Wachowskis made a lot of money from the sequels, which is great for them. But yeah, I I have no real wish to rewatch them anytime soon. Um, apparently there is talk about some sort of reboot or or continuity of um, the current timeline in 2020 Um, and I've done a little bit of research not a great deal but Michael B Jordan's name has popped up as a young Morpheus Um, but they're also saying it's going to be a continuity of the same timeline so I'm not sure whether it's going to be like flashbacks or something to Michael B. Jordan as young Morpheus. I mean, I'm happy to see Michael B. Jordan in pretty much anything. So if he wants to be young Morpheus, then I'm all for it. But I kind of of the opinion that I don't think The Matrix needs any more sequels or reboots or prequels or anything like that. I think you take this movie for what it is and I think it's it's pretty perfect. Um I think it talks about some really deep and interesting themes. And I think it's a movie that you can rewatch multiple times and get multiple things from it, um, which I always find kind of makes a really, really good movie generally. So I always kind of ask for social media thoughts and I did for The Matrix and I had quite a lot. So I'm going to go through them very quickly. Andy at Geek Salad Radio, good friend of the pod, Andy, said, I actually didn't see The Matrix until it 
came out on home video. By the time I finally saw it, it had been built up as a near-religious experience instead of what it was, an innovative sci-fi action film with serviceable storyline. I'm in the minority, I know. Now, I think that there is a case for movies like this to be built up. And I've always said that I feel very much that way about Blade Runner in that I was always told Blade Runner is the greatest movie ever made and it's the greatest sci-fi ever made. And then when I watched Blade Runner, I was actually a bit disappointed with Blade Runner. And I know that's sacrilegious, uh, but I'm being, I'm just being honest. Um, I felt that it was a little bit overrated and I've not watched Blade Runner for quite a while, actually. Um, I watched uh, Blade Runner 2049 and I absolutely loved it. Um, so maybe I should go back and watch Blade Runner. But I can completely understand how a movie like this is so overly hyped. And if you've not seen it and then you see it, you might actually feel a little bit kind of underwhelmed by it. But then I think if you watch it again and you, like I say, you watch it knowing what you know about it being an allegory for trans rights and this whole kind of free will versus destiny kind of uh, theme going through and and it it becomes infinitely more interesting to me um, at Wulong Talk. So that's Jason, who was on the Mummy episode with me. He said, The Game Changer, the movie that took action and sci-fi movie conventions and flipped them on their head, gave us bullet time, philosophy, religion and certified Keanu Reeves as a bona fide star. Uh, as paid beautiful homage to John Woo and introduced the West to Yuan Wu Ping. Which, as I mentioned, Yuan Wu Ping uh, was an absolute legend uh, of Hong Kong cinema um, with his stunts and his fight work. So the fact that they got him to do the work, I think, is absolutely phenomenal because I think the fight scenes are all incredible. I've not mentioned them um, because I... Oh, I kind of felt, like I said, that I went down the rabbit hole with this movie and there's so much to talk about and and so much sort of iconic scenes that I can't believe I've not even mentioned the fight scenes, but they are absolutely incredible and they're pretty much all practical effects, which honestly, like I said, watch the making of this movie. You will just find it completely fascinating. Um, at Unexceptionals, the two scene for me is when everyone is dancing like they're going to die because they think that they are. Neo and Trinity are getting on and it keeps cutting between the two. Great moment showing how people might deal with death, frantic sex or frantic dancing. At Meteor Reviews said, Finally watched this for the first time a couple of weeks ago. I saw it in the cinema and even after 20 years it still holds up. Super cool film. At Killer Fun Pod said, I so questioned reality and the meaning of life. Then I realised it doesn't matter that much and life is what we experience even if it isn't reality. Boy, that will give you sympathy for the mentally ill like little else. That's Christy. At Blue Sox Circle said, The Matrix was the first grown-up movie I ever saw. My brain didn't know how to process it. I was stunned movies could be like that. It became my favourite movie and created my love of science fiction and action. Trinity in particular holds a special place in my heart as my first action heroine. The idea women could do all that too was a revelation after a lifetime of princesses and damsels. She led me to Ripley, Sarah Connor, etc. I'm both forever grateful and forever annoyed at her fate. At Cinema Recall said, It's still a great example of a director's original vision being backed by major studios. We will not get this kind of creativity in a long while. At the Flix Pod, I saw it at a press preview a couple of weeks before it was released. I was expecting a standard action. 
action film, How Wrong I Was, Stunning and Original. At Feminist Hot Dog. I reference it all the time as a metaphor for waking up to white supremacy and patriarchy. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Also, Carrie Ann Moss was and is bae. Um, I mentioned, actually, that it was um, an allegory for trans rights, but I think it absolutely also is a metaphor for white supremacy and the patriarchy as well. So thank you, Feminist Hot Dog, for mentioning that. At Pulp Serial... I watched it again in March because it was the 20th anniversary. I heard that the Wachowskis had snuck in elements about transgendered people. Watching it again with that in mind blew me away. It adds so much more to a film that already has so much going on. Which, as I mentioned, watch it again with the whole trans rights and issues in mind, you will see it with completely different eyes. At I Used to Watch This said, I didn't see this in theatres and bought it on DVD. It was a new TV and I thought something was wrong since everything had green tint. <laughs> That's quite funny. At Select Woman Taft said, What is The Matrix? It's a poorly cast talkie movie that does not hold up. Um, I mean, generally, I would think this person's in the minority, um, but everyone's entitled to their opinion and I always ask for comments on movies and I'm not going to not say a comment just because it's negative about the movie everyone is kind of free to voice their own opinions um, obviously um, at Select Woman Taft does not like The Matrix and that's completely fine um, so I also asked over on Instagram and Rich from Wulong Talks actually gave me a couple of comments he said the film that showed the world about martial arts. The film that made George Lucas embarrassed about The Phantom Menace. One of the last films that had amazing original marketing. Need me to go on. And I did actually say to him he could go on, but he didn't. So that was basically all that I got from Rich. At Vegimorph said... A fun, imaginative sci-fi film. I think the reason it stayed with me for so long, I'll watch it whenever it's on TV, is part because of the mythological storytelling of the hero's journey. The mixture and homage of different genres, the fantastic use of world building that left me eager for more and wondering what they would explore next in this universe. I have not seen the sequels. At Unitananda said, Formerly never thought that I would like action sci-fi, but I'm interested about truth, peace and freedom. So, yeah. And at Aussie Ido said, The Matrix has you. Which I think is a really nice way to end it. <laughs> My journey with The Matrix has, like I said, it's been so eye-opening. It's a movie that's 20 years old this year and it still holds so much value um, and it's value that I didn't actually think that it did hold, that I'm now only just kind of realising that it does, which sounds crazy. Um, it's obviously as a socio-political commentary, as philosophical debate and as art. We always say that we want more originality in Hollywood and here we have a pair of directors who thrive on originality. Um, the Wachowskis generally do produce original work. I think the only remake they've done is Speed Racer, which is, like I said, it's a, a live action adaptation of um, the original anime. Uh, but I think everything else they've done has kind of been their own vision. And it's quite sad that they've never quite been able to match the critical and commercial success of The Matrix. But I kind of think that we discount the Wachowskis at our peril. I do genuinely feel like very soon they're going to come out with something that's quite incredible. Because I think they, obviously, if you look at the Matrix, you can clearly see that they have it in them. It's more than just 
a summer blockbuster. Um, it's more than a cautionary tale of humanity. It's a really, really deep, thought-provoking movie. It still asks more questions than it answers. But I think ultimately, you have to ask yourself, if you were given the choice of the blue pill or the red pill, which one would you choose? Thank you for listening to this episode of Verbal Diorama. Um, like I said, there's so much to talk about with The Matrix and there's so much that I probably haven't mentioned. And if I didn't mention what you wanted me to mention, I'm really sorry. Um, I've gone back and I've rewrote this so many times to try and get everything in. Um, and undoubtedly, it will be my longest solo episode ever. So um, because there's so much to talk about. As always, I always love to hear people's thoughts about the episodes that I do. So please let me know what you think of this episode and on The Matrix in general. In August, I'm still doing Orgstravaganza, which is my thing. And the next episode will be out in one week. And I'm going to be looking at John Carter, which is another episode that I know a lot of people are very excited about. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on. Here we go. Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin 1992 and 2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, X-Men Dark Phoenix, Charlie's Angels 2000 and The Mummy 1999. And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. If you like what I do and you want to leave me a great review like the other 28 people, then you can do so on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever. And I'd really appreciate that. Usually at this point, I mention my Kofi. However, as I've said, I'm doing extravaganza and August is a special month. It's my birthday month. So I don't want anything for myself because I don't need it. For my birthday, if you do want to support the show, I'd really appreciate it if instead of giving me a donation to donate to a charity called Shine. As I mentioned last episode, they do excellent work. They support babies and children with spina bifida, hydrocephalus and related conditions. Um, they provide advice and support to families. Um, as always, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. But otherwise, their website is shinecharity.org.uk slash donate. And any Kofi donations I do receive in the month of August, I'm just going to send directly over to Shine because they need it more than I do. They do excellent work. Thanks again for listening. I will see you next time for John Carter. And our world is a hoax, an elaborate deception spun by all powerful machines of artificial intelligence that control us. Whoa. Blue vision of 